time together through Romans to do a quick review. And this morning, it is going to be a quick review. Otherwise, we are going to be here for a very, very long time. So, quick review of chapters 1 through 8. First, the book of Romans makes it very, very clear that we are all justly convicted and rightly sentenced. That there is not a single human being who can stand before a holy God and say, I am innocent. We have all chosen to disobey him and in in doing so we have committed treason against the king of kings and the lord of lords and so we are guilty of that and because we are guilty then we are sorry got ahead of myself we are rightly sentenced if we are guilty then we are deserving of a sentence just as in the law of man if you are found guilty then there's a consequence to follow In the same way, in the law of God, if you break his law, then there is a consequence to follow. And that consequence is separation from God for eternity, quite literally, hell. But the book goes on. Chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, but now. And what he means by what he begins to share with us is that now, because Jesus Christ has died on the cross and taken our consequence upon his shoulders, because he has been resurrected from the grave, proving that that sacrifice was enough, now there is a way for us to be justified by faith in him. When we, when we come to Christ and we receive his grace, if we will place our faith in him, then he justifies us. That means that he takes us from being guilty to being innocent. That no longer are we guilty people deserving of consequence, but now we are innocent children of God deserving of inheritance. Deserving of his being in his presence for all of eternity. Deserving of heaven and the resurrection and the new earth and the new heavens. And so Paul continues the letter by rejoicing over this new position. That if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now you have peace with God. No longer are you his enemy, but now you are his child. Now you are secure in his unmerited favor. You can't be lost. You can't come to Christ and then lose Christ. You are his forever and ever. That we rejoice in the great hope of the promises that he's made. Because they're not promises as men make promises, but they are promises from a God who always keeps his word. So we rejoice in that. But that, it doesn't just end with rejoicing. Salvation continues on as we are called to live differently. God is not done with you at your baptism. He desires to continue to grow and to mature you and throughout the rest of your life. Just as a, child, a parent is not done with the baby after birth, but they pour into that child that they may grow and mature into a, an adult that contributes well to society. In the same way, God grows and, and continues to watch over the baby Christians as they grow and mature into an adult so they may contribute well to the kingdom. And in chapter 8, Paul begins to just celebrate all of this. And he taught and he reminds us of what God has done in our lives. And he's so, he's so over the moon about who Christ is and what Christ has done and what he is doing in our lives. And the fact that we can never, ever be separated from that once we have been grabbed a hold of. It's an exciting chapter. It's an exciting chapter. And then we come to chapter 9. 
And chapter 9 gets a little bit different. (laughs) Chapter 9 has it in some difficult spots. Before we dig into that too much, though, I want to just help us to understand that chapters 9, 10, and it should say 11 up there, 9, 10, and 11 all look at salvation from kind of a higher elevation. Paul has been kind of in the trenches, so to speak, explaining our need for salvation and explaining how salvation has come to us and explaining it. And now he's going to try to give kind of a bigger picture. Chapter 9 specifically shows God's sovereignty, God's role, God's sovereignty's role in salvation. That's primarily what chapter 9 is trying to show. God's sovereignty, that, the role of that sovereignty in salvation. Chapter 10 is going to look at responsibility, human choice, okay? That we, if you were to read chapter 9 alone, you would think that salvation only was God's sovereignty. If you were to read chapter 10 alone, you would think that the salvation of all humanity rests on your shoulders to go. That there's two things, but these two things actually come together, and that's what chapter 11 begins to do. Chapter 11 begins to combine the sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man in salvation. So it's important that we understand that there is a bigger picture here as we go through these next three chapters, that all three are interconnected together to form one truth. And so this week, we start with chapter 9. We start with the role of God's sovereignty in our salvation. And so if you would, turn your attention back to chapter 9, verse 1. Now remember, in chapter 8, Paul is excited. He is overjoyed. He ends the chapter by saying, starting in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is worthy of an amen and a hallelujah. Like you get to the end of chapter 8, and if you're not ready to storm the gates of hell with a water pistol, I don't know what's going to make you. Like that's exciting stuff. Amen. And then we get to chapter 9. And he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Oh, brothers, do you, do you hear that? Do you hear Paul's heart here? He goes from the great excitement and the great joy and the great praise of chapter 8 where he's like, nothing can separate us from the love of God and how magnificent is that? And to immediately in chapter 9 saying, there is a great sorrow. There's a great anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? Why, why go from the great excitement of 8 to the great lowness and, and heaviness of chapter 9? Well, he tells us in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He is heartbroken because his kinsmen, his people, have not, by and large, come to that same salvation. 
He's heartbroken because he has people in his life that he cares about who do not yet know the glory of chapter 8. They don't know the excitement of chapter 8. They can't get to the end of chapter 8 and proclaim hallelujah and amen. They do not sing God's praises over the salvation that they have been offered because they do not know him. And it breaks Paul's heart. It breaks his heart to the point that he says, I would be willing, I would be willing to cut myself off from Christ that I would take the curse upon myself if they could know him. Now, I'm, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time uh, on this point. We could camp out here a great time. But understand that when he says these words, he understands he cannot do that. He cannot sacrifice himself for someone else. But what he is doing here is expressing the heart of Christ. Remember, God's whole endeavor is to make us look more and more like Jesus Christ throughout our life. And Romans, which is written towards the, towards the end of Paul's ministry, is, is showing this, that Paul is growing in his faith and growing more like Christ. And now he has this heart of Christ because this is exactly what Christ did. He saw us in our need. He saw us under the curse. And he stepped out of the glory of heaven and he lived a perfect life, and he went to the cross and died a horrific death. But more than the physical, he suffered the curse for us to the point that God the Father turned his back on the Son. And the Son felt for the first time separation from the Father. He became cursed so that we might know salvation. And now Paul is reflecting that and saying, that's what I wish I could do. That's what I wish I could do. Brothers and sisters, do we have the heart of Christ? Do we have the heart that Paul reflects here? That we look at lost people and we have great sorrow and anguish that they cannot yet know the glories of chapter 8. The glories of God's salvation. You see, chapter 9 is not a theological or philosophical brain teaser. It is born out of the deep desire for people to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And when you understand that, then you begin to put 9, 10, and 11 in that context of, okay, how does this happen? How do we get these people that we desire to know God, to know salvation? How do we get them there? And what we're going to see at the beginning is we can't. He can. Chapter 9 is all about this role of God's sovereignty in salvation and helping us to understand that we cannot move anyone, including ourselves, from the curse to the blessing. He has to do that. Now chapter 10 is going to still be in the same context of desiring salvation. But there it's going to show us that how God does that. In God's sovereignty, he alone saves. But he chooses to do that through humanity. God could just come to each individual and say, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. Come, fo come follow me. And in some ways that might have been more efficient. 
if God would have just showed up on my doorstep one day, threw the door open and said, you follow me. But he doesn't do it that way. In his wisdom, he chooses to use you and I as conduits of his grace. And he chooses to allow people responsibility in that decision. But that's for next week before I get too far ahead. There are two questions then that come out of Paul's heart, out of his cry here in the first five verses. The first question is, has God failed his people? And probably a better way to put that is, has God's word failed? God promises to call a people unto himself and to keep them. It was understood beforehand that this meant the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, that's predominantly what was thought of. And even early in the New Testament, it's like, okay, Israel is the nation. Israel is who God is calling to himself. So is God's word failed? The second question, which we are not going to get to, this is more for chapter 11, is will any be saved? If our heart is for people to come to know Christ, then we ask the question, Has God's word failed? Is he failing to bring people to himself? And the second question, will any be saved? Will anyone come to Christ? So those are the two questions that come out of this idea. This morning, we're going to look primarily at the first one. Notice in verse 6, it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So we have the implication of a question. Paul is answering the question, has God's word failed? Has, it, has he failed to draw a people to himself? That's the question. And of course the answer is absolutely not. For it is not as though the word of God has failed. For all, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, though, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So to the question, has God failed to draw people to himself? Has his word failed? Paul's response is absolutely not. And his first point, his first answer to that, is that genealogy does not dictate who are true Israelites. God's, your genealogy, the blood that runs through your veins, does not dictate whether you are a child of God or not. Now, for us, that, that makes sense. For us, on this side of Romans, we would say, of course it doesn't. We understand that anyone can be a child of God if they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But remember, Paul is writing this to Jews in the first century. And for them, this idea that your genealogy doesn't dictate whether you're a child of God or not is mind-blowing. They're like, wait a minute. What do you mean that Gentiles can come to know and be known by God? What do you mean they can be children of God? And so Paul backtracks and says, guys, this has always been the plan. He goes back to the promise that is made to Abraham and to Sarah and then later to Isaac and his wife and their kids. And he says, look with me at the promise. It's not genealogy. It's those who come to the promise. And even as we then go on to the Old Testament, we have someone like Rahab 
who is a citizen of Jericho. She is not Jewish, and yet she hears by God's grace of who God is and what he has done for the people of Israel, and rather than respond in fear like the rest of her countrymen, she responds in faith that he is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he can do. And she begins to help the Jewish people, the Israelites, in their endeavor that God has put them on to have the promised land. And her family is saved because of it. And she is grafted into the people of Israel. She becomes an Israelite because of her faith. And we see other examples of this throughout the Old Testament, probably most notably Ruth. And so it's always been the plan of God. It's always been the plan of God to draw people to him, whether they were Israelites or not. But after the cross, now the doors are thrown wide open. And now the Gentiles are invited clearly to come. And they have accepted Christ by faith. And so they have proven themselves to be his people kind of like a, in some ways, it's kind of like an Easter egg hunt. That when you send the child, when, as a child, you go out the door, you're told, hey, we're going to go find Easter eggs, and you're, you're sent out the door to go find Easter eggs. There is a faith that there are actually Easter eggs in the yard, right? Unless you have one of those grandparents, okay? There are eggs in that yard. They just need to be found. And the, the awesome thing is that the grandparent knows where they are. Well, most of the time, unless they've forgotten and then the lawnmower gets them later. Okay? In the same way, there are children of God in this world who have not yet been found yet. And God sends us out to say, go find them. Bring them home. And so we go with a confidence that he knows where they are, that he is already, that they are out there just waiting to hear the gospel, just as he found us. And so Paul's first argument is, your genealogy doesn't dictate who the true Israelites are. They are out there, and God's word is bringing them in. He also says this, he says, second, God is not done with the nation of Israel. Okay? Now, we're not going to get too deep into this because this is chapter 11. But he says, God is not done with the nation of Israel. For this period in time, God has thrown the doors wide open to the Gentiles to find the children of God who reside among them that he may draw them close to himself. But he's not done with Israel. Chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I'm just going to read a little bit. It says, I ask then, as God rejected his people, meaning here is Israel, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Now he appeals to God against Israel. The Lord, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone left, and they seek my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So God is not done with Israel. He is still calling Jewish people to himself as his true children. And Revelation tells us that one day that God will do a great work in that nation and many will come to him. There will be an awakening 
And some believe this has already begun when you begin to look at some of the things that are happening in Israel. That there's an awakening happening where God is drawing many to him. And so the answer to the question, has God's word failed? Is he, has he failed his people? The answer is no. He is still in the business of saving people. And this is where we get into a debate, though. This is where we get into all kinds of things. Because then he goes on. Look with me here, starting in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Going down a little bit farther to verse 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Here's where we get into the debate, okay? Let's first talk about what we all agree on for the most part. We all agree, no matter what denomination you are part of, no matter, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, we pretty much all agree that God chooses who he will show grace to. We go back to verses where Jesus says, I've called, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And we can go throughout Scripture. We can, Ephesians chapter 1, we can, go, we can go several different places and understand, all of us, that God in his infinite wisdom has chosen individuals to show his grace to. That is pretty universally accepted. However, where we get into a debate is how this happens. How does he do the choosing is where we get into the debate. There are two camps, and I promise we are not going to have an, we are not going to try to solve 2,000 years of debate on this topic in um, 15 minutes, okay? But there are two, two camps here, and I'm going to oversimplify these two camps quite a bit, okay, for the sake of time. But here we go. There is the camp of foreknowledge or free will that says that God in his infinite wisdom looks throughout human history and based upon his foreknowledge of how you would respond to grace and how you are going to act to grace, then he chooses you based on that, okay? So he, he looks ahead. As one of my dear friends says, he watches the movie he knows what's going to happen, and then he rewinds it and plays it again and says, I choose this good guy, <laughs> okay? That, that's, how, that's how, in some ways, foreknowledge works, okay? That God chooses based on what he already knows about you. Unconditional predestination says that God chooses who God chooses, that it's not based on anything that you will or will not do. But God chooses to show his grace to whomever he chooses to show his grace to. 
that it's not predicated upon anything else other than his unmerited favor to some. Now, a couple of things here before we get too much farther into the weeds. As we look through Scripture, there are plenty of Scriptures that talk about the responsibility and the choice that a a person must make in faith. There are also plenty of verses that talk about God's sovereignty in choosing those individuals. So much so that Charles Spurgeon says this, These two truths, predestination and free will, I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil. In other words, our human abilities cannot bring these two things together. But one, they shall be in eternity. They are two lines so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth doth spring. In other words, these two things are true. And though our brain would see them in conflict, the the view from eternity is that they are in compare and, and put together in such an remarkable way that you and I will never fully understand it until we get to the other side of glory. Okay? So let's put down our weapons. Let's put down our weapons. Far too long, this issue has been an issue of division that we have picked up arms against brothers and sisters and said, we must fight to the death. Let's stop it. We can be brothers and sisters and disagree about exactly how this works. We can worship together. We can declare one another children of God and not fully agree on exactly the the mechanics of how this happens how free will and predestination work together okay but but hear me out on this there would be some that would say in response to that then why talk about it then why even discuss it why bother my brain with something that i cannot fully understand why why have the discussions that can lead to Grief and frustration. And my answer would be to that, because this does. Why have the discussion? Why wrestle with it? Why try to understand it? Because it's in the Word of God. And if He didn't want you to understand it, if He didn't want you to wrestle with it, if He didn't want you to grapple with it and try to understand it, then He wouldn't have put it in here. So don't just dismiss it either. Grab hold of it. Ask him to give you direction. Okay. All of that to say this. As your pastor, I lean towards unconditional predestination. That should be a surprise to almost none of you that have listened to me over the years. I lean that direction. Let me tell you a little bit about why, and let me show you from chapter 9 how I get there. First... In verse 16, it says, So then, it, salvation, 
depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So verse 16 pretty stately, clearly states, salvation does not have anything to do with your will or your works. It has to do with his mercy. If I were to come to any one of you probably and to say, do you believe that salvation is works-based? The vast majority of you are going to get puffed up and say, absolutely not. Absolutely it's not works-based. We know that. We've been taught that since we were little kids. We know that it's by grace that God saves us. Okay, then let me ask you this question. Why is it when it comes to who God chooses, we're okay with saying that it's God looks ahead into the future and says, well, this person's going to act well, this person's going to respond well to grace, so I'm going to choose them. Is that not works-based? We would deny it in any other context except for this one because this one makes us feel uncomfortable. <laughs> but in any other context, we would deny works-based. And yet, foreknowledge says that he is basing his decision on our works. And so based on the totality of Scripture, I have to say, eh, that doesn't make any sense. No, God's grace, his unmerited favor, that's what grace is, unearned favor has to be based on just him choosing who he's going to choose when he wants to choose them. Two more. So that's, that's number one. Now let me dig a little farther into this scripture. This, this debate, this issue, Paul realizes brings with it some questions. There are two natural questions that Paul brings up in this passage, natural question number one is, is God unjust? Is God unjust? Now, let me, let me back up a minute. If we are saying that God chooses to show grace to those he knows that are going to respond positively towards it, then this question doesn't need to be answered. Because the individual is the one that has chosen grace or not chosen grace, and therefore, God is neither just nor unjust. He's just responding to that individual. So this question doesn't need to be asked. However, if, we, if Paul is indeed saying that God chooses whom he will whenever he wants for whatever reasons he has, then this question makes sense. Then we have to ask the question, is God unjust? And he gives us an answer. He says that God chooses, or sorry, he says that he reminds us that we are justly convicted. Remember, the, remember what we've seen, verse chapters 1 through 8. Is God unjust in showing grace to some? No, because we're all convicted, right? We're all guilty. So if he were to show grace to no one, he would still be just in sending us all to the right sentence, he would still be just, even if he showed grace to no one. If he showed grace to no one, he would still be just. Not only that, but no one can say that God owes them salvation. There's not a single one of us that can stand before a holy God and say, you owe me something. Based on what, friend? 
And the answer is nothing. We, we have nothing to bring to the table. So no one can say that they owe God salvation, and no one can earn grace. We've already talked about this a lot. But God is, is God unjust? The answer is no, he's not unjust. Because his justice, and he's not unjust in showing grace, because justice would be to all show us the consequence of hell. So that's question number one. Question number two is how then can he find fault? Again, this question does not have any founding if we're going with foreknowledge. If God is basing his decision upon looking into the future and saying, this person will respond to grace and this person won't, so I'm going to show grace to that one, then we can't, this question makes no sense. However, if we're saying that God chooses whom he will choose despite how we act, then we can ask the question, is God unjust? Or sorry, is God, how can God find fault? We go back to what it says, the verse here. It says, you will say to me, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? What Paul is asking here on behalf of the reader is if God chooses whom he will show grace upon, then how can he convict us? If God has created in such a way that some are gonna experience grace and some are not, then how can he give a sentence? How can he convict? So let's try to answer that. Number one, he chose who to save. He did not choose who will sin. Okay, I think sometimes we get this a little bit a little bit different in our heads. God cho- is choosing, what, what Scripture is saying here is that God is choosing whom he will save. He is not choosing who will sin. Who chose, who chose to sin? You did. I did. I chose that. I chose to walk away from God. I chose to disobey. I chose to look at God and say, I can do it better. I chose that. You chose that. Every single one of us did. So God didn't choose who would walk away from him. What we are saying is, God does choose who he will show grace to. That he does choose to say, this one I will keep. This one I'm going to pull back. This one I'm going to keep for myself. Second point that Paul makes here is we are not owed anything. We're not owed salvation, and we are not owed an explanation. Notice how he answers this question. He says, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And Paul's answer is not really an answer. (laughs) He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known 
His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that, they may, that he may make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called not from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. Paul's answer to those that would ask why does, or how can God choose some and not choose others is God doesn't owe you an explanation for anything he does. By the way, this is not the only time that we see this. You go back and read the book of Job, and they begin to ask the question, why, why does Job suffer? And really, the bigger question is, why does humanity suffer? And what is God's answer? Who are you again? Were you there when I created the earth? Do you have control over the weather? Do you tell the rain where to fall? Do you tell the lightning where to strike? Do you tell the hail where to hit? To bring it a little home. Do you control the wild beast of the, of the field? You don't know anything. You struggle to build a house and put all the pieces together in the right order. You think you're going to be able to comprehend eternal things? Weighty things? Like grace? So when he says, who can find fault? How can he find fault? Remember, you're the one that chose to walk away from him. He's the one showing grace. And who he chooses to show grace to is his business. Not ours. Let me be the first to say that is not always a satisfying answer. I understand that. There are many of you this morning that would be like, wait, what do you mean? There are many times that I would say, wait, I need more. And he says, not now. You can't get it now. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us in terms of salvation? Turn with me to verse 30. If you have been fallen asleep due to the academic nature of said sermon so far, please turn your ears back on and hear this last part. Verse 30, he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling block, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Couple, couple things here. First, Righteousness comes through faith. Regardless of what you believe about how God chooses to show, who God chooses to show grace and how the mechanics of that work, regardless if you agree with me this morning or not, righteousness comes through faith. Salvation comes through faith. It cannot come through works. Paul says here at the end of chapter 9, why have the Jews fallen over grace? Why have they not figured it out? 
it's because they still think they can earn it. They still think, if I just obey the law well enough, if I just sacrifice the right animal, if I just obey the Ten Commandments, if I'm just a good person, then I will earn righteousness. And Jesus Christ stands in their way and says, no, it is all on me. You have to trust me. So no matter what you see in the rest of chapter 9, see this. Righteousness comes through faith. It cannot come through works. And if you respond to that gospel, then you are the chosen, no matter how you think you got there. You are the chosen. If you can declare, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins, that he rose from the grave three days later, that he is the son of God, and I will follow him, then you are his, no matter how you think you got there. You are his, and he is yours. Some final thoughts, and I know we're pushing up against time, but some final thoughts, and we'll go quickly through these. Know that this chapter teaches assurance in God's goodness and in his justice. Know that chapter 9 teaches that we can have assurance in God's goodness and in his justice. Know that it teaches that we can have assurance in our salvation. Let me, let me tell you another reason, one last reason why I hold to this, I lean this direction. Because the, the outcome of this is if God chose me and he saved me, then I can't lose it. We believe in the assurance of the believer that once saved, always saved. Why? Because he chose me first. And if he saved me, then nothing can undo that. If I chose him, then that means I can unchoose him. Chapter 9 teaches that we have assurance in our salvation, that if we are his, we will always be his. And the truth of chapter 8 becomes clear that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Lastly, final thought. Chapter 9 gives us assurance in our witnessing. People ask me from time to time, you believe in that predestination stuff, then why, why go witness? Why go witness? If those people are going to come to Jesus anyway, why go witness? Because he told me to. And just like the little kid who walks out the front door with the promise of Easter eggs, how much more I walk out the front door of this church with the promise that there is someone out there who is a child of God, who God wants to come to him. And the means by which that God has ordained for that to happen is for me to go and find them. Not that I'm anything special, but God has given me the blessing of doing so. So I walk out the door with the gospel in my mouth, knowing that God saves and that he will save. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you may be timid about your witnessing. You may think, will it make any difference? And my response to you is absolutely, it has been ordained. Go. Tell people about Christ. Find our brothers and sisters who aren't home yet. And bring them back. That is the promise of our Savior. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up this morning. We're going to have a time of response. I understand that this sermon is a little different. My brain hurts. 
But I hope that you hold on to what we've spoken about in the last five minutes. That God has chosen to show his grace to sinners. And that if you will accept him in faith, you will be his. And it is assured. It is promised. Believer, I pray that you hear those words. That there are those out here, out there who are the children of God that are not home yet. And he is sending us. Will you go? Will you be part? Will you be part of the hunt? Will you be part of this rescue mission that God has called us into? Pray that you will. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, these are hard words to understand. And I, I have no doubt that there are some who are still confused about predestination and foreknowledge and all those big words. I have no doubt that there are some this morning who disagree with me. But Father, I pray that you would unite us in this. That you are good. That you died on the cross and that you rose three days later so that we might have salvation. That we might know you. That we might rest upon you. That we might agree in this, that you have called every believer to go out into their workplace and into their homes, into their neighborhoods and their communities to share of this good news that we may focus upon you this morning, that we may know that you are ours and that we are yours. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ.